Our text this afternoon is God's Word, which we have summarized and confessed as a church in the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 31. Lord's Day 31 begins with this question, what are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? The preaching of the Holy Gospel and church discipline. By these two, the kingdom of heaven is open to believers and closed to unbelievers. How is the kingdom of heaven open and closed by the preaching of the gospel? According to the command of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is opened when it is proclaimed and publicly testified to each and every believer that God has really forgiven all their sins for the sake of Christ's merits as often as they by true faith accept the promise of the gospel. The kingdom of heaven is closed when it is proclaimed and testified to all unbelievers and hypocrites that the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rest on them as long as they do not repent. According to this testimony of the gospel, God will judge both in this life and in the life to come. How is the kingdom of heaven closed and opened by church discipline? According to the command of Christ, people who call themselves Christians but show themselves to be unchristian in doctrine or life are first repeatedly admonished in a brotherly manner. If they do not give up their errors or wickedness, they are reported to the church, that is, to the elders. If they do not heed also their admonitions, they are forbidden the use of the sacraments and they are excluded by the elders from the Christian congregation and by God himself from the kingdom of Christ. They are again received as members of Christ and of the church when they promise and show real amendment. So far from our confession. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I'm sure that many of you here this afternoon, either in your pockets or perhaps in your purse, have a set of keys. And these keys are what allows you to get into things or perhaps keep people out of things. Whether that's your house or your car, maybe a barn or a shed in the backyard. If you want to go into these things, you need to unlock the door with a key. And if you're going to keep people out of them, then you lock the door with that same key. And it's exactly this simple image which our Lord Jesus Christ uses in Matthew 16 to also describe the kingdom of heaven. There in Matthew 16, we see that Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responds with those well-known words, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. And then Jesus says in verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus Christ here is giving keys to Peter, but as we'll see also to the rest of the apostles and even to the church itself, in order that they could use these keys for the building of the church. With these keys of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus Christ himself, through these people, is going to open the kingdom to those who believe and also close the kingdom to unbelievers. 
And so we have as our theme this afternoon, Christ uses the keys of the kingdom to build his church. And we have two points. First, the keys are given to the church. And then secondly, the keys are used by the church. So first then, the keys are given to the church. As clear as this image of keys is in Matthew 16, the surrounding context has a bit of history of differing interpretation. And specifically, verse 18, if you look at Matthew 16, verse 18, our Lord Jesus Christ says to Peter, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What is our Lord Jesus Christ really saying with this verse? Why is he referring to Peter in this way? Now, maybe you know that this is one of the key passages that the Roman Catholic Church points to in order to support their idea of a pope. This idea that there is a head of the church on earth, directly under the head of the church in heaven, who is Jesus Christ. And the point here to Matthew 16, verse 18, and they say, look, here is evidence that Jesus Christ himself set up Peter as some sort of earthly head, an earthly pope, if you will one from whom every successive pope came after. That's what the Roman Church believes. And as you might expect, as Reformed believers, we don't exactly hold to that interpretation. And that interpretation's been challenged in any number of ways throughout church history, especially since the Reformation. And other explanations of this passage have been offered. Some people say that when Jesus said that, He's actually simply saying that Peter's confession is the rock on which the church will be built. Or people suggest that Peter is simply an example of the type of person whom the kingdom of God would come to. And still others suggest that, well, actually Jesus is talking about himself here, saying that he is the rock on which the church will be built. And of course, we want to do our best to get away from this Roman Catholic interpretation, and many of these interpretations are tempting to accept. But when we read the text of Matthew 16, when we see what Jesus says, and also the the wordplay that's going on, perhaps you know that the name Peter in Greek is the same word for rock, then it's all very clear that what Jesus is saying here is that Peter is the rock. Jesus says to Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. That's what he's saying. Now the question we must wrestle with is, what exactly does that mean? You know, why does Jesus Christ say to Peter that he is the rock, which Jesus will build his church on? Well, congregation, Jesus is speaking to Peter in this way because of what Peter had just confessed. Peter had confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Peter would be instrumental in also proclaiming that very message to the very first Christian believers. And when did that happen? Well, you can think of the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. There, Jesus' followers are all huddled in a room. They have the door locked for fear of the Jews. The Spirit comes upon them, and they begin preaching the word. 
And Peter himself stands up and he gives that beautiful Pentecost sermon. He proclaims the gospel message of a crucified Savior to all the Jews gathered there. You know, in a very real way, Peter was one of the first to proclaim that gospel message. He was the first to open the kingdom through the preaching. Now, of course, at the same time, we need to recognize, and we need to be very clear about this, that Peter was not the only one to whom Jesus gave such authority. If we look again in Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus asks his disciples in verse 15, Jesus says, Who do you say that I am? He's speaking to all of his disciples. The you in verse 15 is in the plural. And so even though Simon Peter is the one who responds, we know that his response is one that will be shared by the rest of the disciples. Peter, in some sense, is speaking on behalf of them. And we also know that later on, Jesus Christ will send out all of these men as his apostles, those sent out to proclaim the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we know that this is true because this is where scripture, this is what scripture speaks of elsewhere. If you think of Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20, it teaches there that the household of God is built upon the foundation of the apostles. Not just Peter, but all of the apostles and the prophets as well. And who is the cornerstone? Well, it's Jesus Christ. And as you read through the book of Acts, this becomes increasingly clear as well. We've already mentioned Peter's Pentecost sermon. But even there, when Peter was the one preaching to the Jews, he wasn't the only one. The Holy Spirit came upon all the people with Peter. And among those people were the disciples of Jesus Christ. And all of the disciples started proclaiming the message of salvation in those foreign languages. From the very beginning, Peter was there, but so were the other disciples, the other apostles, proclaiming the good news. And this is made also quite clear if you turn to the book of John, John chapter 20. Jesus again appears to his disciples after he has risen from the dead. And our Lord Jesus Christ says there in John 20 verse 21, he says to his disciples, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold the forgiveness of any, it is withheld. And so also in this passage we see our Lord Jesus Christ giving authority to forgive sin or to retain that sin to all of the disciples. It's not simply Peter, but all the followers of Christ, his disciples, to whom he has given keys of the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus has given these keys to his disciples who would become apostles as the very foundation of the church. And Jesus Christ would continue to use these keys of the kingdom to build his church also today. You know, this is a process that has not stopped. Jesus first gave the keys to the men who would be the foundation of the church. And now today as well, the church has authority from Jesus Christ himself 
to open the kingdom and to close the kingdom through the keys of the kingdom. And this is something we'll see more clearly as we come to our second point then. The second point, the keys are used by the church. So having read that passage from Matthew 16, and also those few verses from John chapter 20, I think some of us might realize that it's not immediately obvious what the keys of the kingdom actually are. Jesus Christ says that he is going to give to Peter the keys of the kingdom, but we might wonder a little bit, well, what exactly are those keys? How are the disciples going to withhold forgiveness or extend forgiveness? Well, what was not exactly clear in Matthew 16 becomes very clear as Scripture goes on. And we've referenced already Acts chapter 2. As soon as the disciples receive the Holy Spirit, as soon as they are commissioned to start doing their work, what's the first thing they do? Well, they begin preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Peter proclaims that Jesus is the Christ, the crucified and risen Savior. Peter proclaims through his preaching that it is in him that there is forgiveness to be found. And as we know, some 3,000 people that day on Pentecost come to believe in Jesus Christ. Peter has just used the key of the preaching of the kingdom to open the kingdom of heaven to those 3,000 people that day. And if you keep reading through Acts, if you keep reading through the New Testament letters as well, the same pattern is seen. People come to faith through the preaching of the gospel. The kingdom of heaven is opened through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And of course, it doesn't take long for us to realize that this is exactly what Jesus Christ is doing today. Jesus continues to open his kingdom through the keys which he's given to the church, and the first of those is the preaching. And those apostles, they knew that this was going to take place. They knew that the preaching must continue. And for that reason, they encouraged people to continue preaching after them. You can think, for example, of what the Apostle Paul says to to Timothy. 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. The Apostle Paul says to his young protege there, He says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Peter, pardon me, Paul, wants the preaching to continue. And you can think too of what Paul has written to Timothy, just in the previous letter, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. There the Apostle Paul says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And so we see in Scripture congregation, there's a clear emphasis on the need for preaching. Why? Well, it's because it's through the preaching that the kingdom of heaven will continue to be open to those who believe. Preaching is one of the keys of the kingdom that Jesus Christ gave 
first to the apostles, and they in turn passed it on to the church. Think too of what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 10. Those well-known verses, Romans 10, verse 13 and 14. The Apostle says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he asks, How then will they call on him whom they have never, in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And so our Lord Jesus Christ, through this key of the preaching, week after week, is working to open his kingdom to those who believe. And you can think about it in real time right now. Jesus Christ And God the Father, in his abounding grace, is ensuring that the gospel of the kingdom is being proclaimed to you each and every Sunday and also today. God is proclaiming and publicly testifying to us the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as our catechism says, what is that gospel? Well, it's this beautiful message that God has really forgiven all their sin for the sake of Christ's merits as often as they, by true faith, accept the promise of the gospel. This really is the message which God proclaims from week to week. The message that he proclaims is one of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. As often as you, by true faith, accept the promise of the gospel, then God, through this key of the kingdom, is opening the kingdom of heaven to you. And so if you're here this afternoon, and if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, then you can know that you will be saved. You can know that God is using this key of the kingdom to open the very kingdom of heaven to you. Now, of course... This goes both ways. Because just as a key can open something, a key can also close it. And our catechism goes on and it speaks about those who do not repent. Those who do not acknowledge their need for a savior. Those who are unbelievers. Those who are hypocrites. In the case of these people, it's the preaching of the gospel which will close the kingdom of heaven to them. And really, at the end of the day, these are the only two options out there. Either the door to the kingdom of heaven is unlocked and open to you, or the door of the kingdom of heaven is closed and locked. Just as there are two types of people in this world. Those who are righteous in Jesus Christ because they believed in him, and those who remain in their sin and in their wickedness, apart from Jesus Christ. And after the sermon this afternoon, we'll sing also from Psalm 1, a psalm which paints a clear picture of those two types of people, the righteous and the wicked. And the righteous are those brought by God into his kingdom. The wicked are those who will be blown away like chaff in the wind. Because we know, congregation, that there is no name under heaven by which men must be saved with the name of Jesus Christ. And if you don't confess your dependence upon Jesus as Savior, 
then as the Catechism itself teaches us, the wrath of God and eternal condemnation will rest on you. And that's hard language. It's heavy language, and it's meant to be that way. Because the wrath of God is a fearful thing. Life is short. It's appointed for man and women to die once and then face the judgment seat of Christ. And unless we are found to have faith in Jesus Christ, then we will be cast out of the kingdom, and the kingdom will be forever closed to us. And so again this afternoon, Jesus Christ is calling each and every one of us to put our faith in him, to repent from our sin, to turn away from our ungodliness, to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, that only in him do we have forgiveness, and only in him is the kingdom of heaven opened to believers. And Jesus Christ has also given his church the duty to make this opening and this closing of the kingdom also explicit through the second key, which is church discipline. And here church discipline is something which our Lord Jesus Christ gave direct instruction on in Matthew chapter 18. And as we read through Matthew 18, there's one thing that becomes abundantly clear about church discipline, and that is that it belongs, first of all, to the congregation as a whole. Sometimes we think that the elders or the leadership are responsible for discipline, but we know the words of our Lord Jesus Christ that really it starts with each individual member among us. Our Lord says in Matthew 18, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. We see in these verses no involvement from the church. There's no involvement by the elders. It's a matter for the members of the congregation on their own to begin this process of discipline. And we shouldn't be afraid to do this either congregation. If you see someone who is going down a path of sin, someone who needs to be reminded of what it looks like to live a Christian life, then we need to tell that person. Sometimes all a person needs is that gentle reminder or maybe a bit more of a firm admonition encouraging them to, to think about the way they are living. And oftentimes they will acknowledge that there has been weakness. There has been sin. They will turn from it. And isn't that exactly the purpose of discipline? To win your brother or your sister back. To bring them back into obedience to Jesus Christ. To again assure them that the kingdom of heaven is open to them. And congregation, if you ever find yourself on the receiving end of an admonition like this, on the receiving end of someone coming to you in these first step or two of discipline, that's a time for humility. 
It's a time to be humble, to seriously consider what your brother or sister in Christ is telling you. And if you have wronged somebody, then you need to seek reconciliation. You need to be restored to one another. And not for your own sake, but for the very sake of the church of Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ, through the key of discipline, is the one building and preserving his church. And so if someone were to come to you and suggest that there is sin in your life that needs to be repented from, then instead of resisting that, you could acknowledge that God is being gracious to you. That he would reveal this to you, that you have people around you who love you and who desire you to live according to the will of God and to stay in the kingdom of heaven. But of course, there comes a time where members do not repent from sin and where the leadership of the church does take action. And here again, the command of Christ is clear. We need to make it clear to the sinner and indeed to the whole congregation that unrepentant and unbelieving people do not belong in the kingdom of heaven. We need to make it clear to them that the kingdom of heaven is closed as long as they do not repent from sin. And yet even here, congregation, as difficult as it is to take that step, it's a step which is done in love. Because we discipline with the goal of winning people back. We discipline with the goal of continuing to build the church of Christ, not to tear it down. So never would we discipline someone out of anger or out of spite, Discipline is done out of love and out of a concern for the sheep who is straying. And it's also because of this that it wouldn't be helpful to delay the process of discipline for an unnecessarily long period of time. And you can think about this through an analogy. If you saw someone, perhaps a young child, walking a little bit too close to the road and there were cars coming towards them, what are you going to do? Well, you'll go to that child and pull them out of the way. And if we see someone in church going down the path of sin, and we don't do anything, we just sit back and hope it'll change, is that what Christ has commanded his church to do? When in reality... God's wrath and eternal condemnation rests on somebody as long as they do not repent from sin. And of course, we need to think of more than just the sinner themselves, but of the whole congregation. You know, what would happen if if sin was tolerated just in one little corner of the church? If sin was, was seen clearly in someone's life and nothing was done about it? Well, I could think here of what our Lord Jesus Christ taught in Matthew 16, verses 5 through 12. He tells his disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they don't quite understand what he means at first, but then finally they get the point and they say, oh, the leaven, that's their teaching. And why should they be aware of the teaching of the Pharisees? Well, because their teaching was wicked. And if their teaching was allowed to, to continue and to be part of of the church, and it would spread. 
You know, there's a little bit of leaven that leavens the whole lump. In the same way, a little bit of sin, when it's left in place, can spread to the rest of the congregation and to the rest of the body. And again, when we think about what our Lord Jesus Christ desires for his own body, the church of Jesus Christ, then the toleration of sin in a corner of the church spreading through the church is obviously not what he has in mind. And in reality, when the church disciplines a member and when the sad time comes, when even excommunication might be necessary, the church is really just declaring what is already the reality in heaven. An unrepentant sinner has already been excluded from the kingdom of God in the divine court of God himself. And when the church then excommunicates a person on earth, they're simply showing the reality of what has already taken place in heaven. They're using this key to make it clear. But even here, congregation, we know that church discipline and even excommunication itself is done out of love. Love for the whole congregation, yes, but especially for that sinner too. Because we want them back. Discipline is a key of the kingdom of heaven which Jesus Christ is using to build the church. And even when people are excluded from the kingdom through discipline, the purpose is that they might be won back. And what does that mean for us? Well, it means that we must be ready always to forgive. Not just in the case of someone who's been excommunicated, but perhaps someone else who is living in sin and who has been disciplined. What happens when they repent? What happens when they turn from their life and come back? Well, what should happen is that we accept them back with open and loving arms into the kingdom of Christ. You can think here of what Peter asked our Lord Jesus Christ about forgiveness. You know, Peter says, how many times am I going to forgive my brother? If he sins against me, should it be even seven times? And what does Jesus Christ say? He says, I don't say seven times, but 77 times. And of course, the point of what he is saying is that there is no limit to how many times you forgive someone when they turn from their sin. When they repent, when they come back into the kingdom of Christ, it's a beautiful thing. And if we were to drive the point home, then we would use this parable that Jesus himself told in Matthew 18. He's just finished teaching about discipline, and then he tells this parable of the unforgiving servant. And what do you think the point of this parable was? Well, I think... Our Lord Jesus Christ tells us through the mouth of the Master in this parable in Matthew 18, verse 33, where the Master says to that wicked servant, And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And what is that saying to us? Well, it's reminding us to never forget about the key of the kingdom which first opened the kingdom to us. Never forget that we too 
have received mercy and grace from God. God has ensured that the gospel of Jesus Christ has been proclaimed to us. He has worked in our hearts by the Holy Spirit so that we accept that gospel message. God, through Jesus Christ, has forgiven our sin. The kingdom of heaven is open to us only because of the grace of God. And if a member of the body of Christ who has fallen into sin then comes back to the body and humbly repents, should we not have mercy on them as God has had mercy on each and every one of us who accept the gospel by true faith? And is there not more rejoicing in heaven over that one sinner who repents than over the 99 who need no repentance? Because our entire faith, our entire salvation, it's based on the work of Jesus Christ. It's based on the forgiveness we have in Christ. It's based on the righteousness which is ours through Christ. And just as God has forgiven us, So we also are called to forgive our brother or sister from the heart as often as they repent from their sin. And so we see congregation again this afternoon that Jesus Christ is building his church. We know that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so let us continue to remain faithful in using the keys of the kingdom which Jesus has given. And let us rejoice together that his kingdom has been open to us and that it's open to all who believe in him through true faith in Jesus Christ. Amen.